it's a blasted hellhole. It's the kind of world that eats spacecraft for lunch. Um, we've tried to set a couple of spacecraft on its surface. They've lasted not that long. The surface temperatures are about 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Surface pressures are immense, as if you're at the bottom of the ocean on Earth. The clouds shrouding the planet are primarily made of sulfuric acid. The first time an American spacecraft encountered another planet outside of our own was in 1962, when NASA's Mariner 2 flew past Venus. If we want to really understand Earth, we have to study other worlds because Earth is kind of like one experiment that got done. But the last mission NASA sent to Venus was in the late 70s. And there is still a lot to be learned from our nearest neighbor, even if it is a blasted hellhole. Because a long time ago, it actually looked a lot like Earth. In a lot of ways, Venus and Earth are very similar and have had very different outcomes, at least at this point in solar system history. From WKMG in Orlando, this is Space Curious. I'm your host, Emily Speck. For the first time, scientists say there may be signs of life on Venus. It exists in tiny molecules in the atmosphere. Researchers don't know how it got there or what it means, but it's drawing new attention to Earth's nearest planetary neighbor. So sometime um, over the summer, we'd gotten a heads up that there was going to be a very interesting paper coming out um, that was looking at a potential biosignature that had been found in the clouds of Venus. And what we mean by biosignature is just a sign of life, something that might indicate that life is present. That's Nadia Drake, who you heard from at the start of the show, describing the not so wonderful qualities of Venus. I am a contributing writer at National Geographic, where I mostly cover astronomy, astrophysics, and planetary science, also spaceflight. When the paper from a group of international scientists came out in September, it was a big deal because a particular kind of gas called phosphine. It's extremely toxic. It's deadly. It will kill anything that relies on oxygen to live. And it's thought to be made in only one of a few ways. At least on rocky planets like Venus and Earth can only be made by life, whether microbe or in Earth's case, human. And the argument that they were making was that there's no way for phosphine to be produced by any known mechanism on Venus that does not involve life, which is a really extraordinary claim to be making. That's actually a very exciting, exciting discovery because if it's true, it could be the first indication that we have found evidence for life beyond Earth. That's a huge deal. Yeah, my name is Sarah Hurst. I'm an assistant professor in planetary science, Johns Hopkins University in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Uh, so I live here in Baltimore, Maryland. Hurst also studies the atmospheres of other worlds. She's going to help us better understand why a group of scientists would be looking for this interesting gas in the first place. There has been some work that says that it's very hard to make phosphine in ways that don't involve life. It's obviously not impossible because we have already seen phosphine in other 
planetary atmospheres, there's phosphine in Jupiter's atmosphere, there's phosphine in Saturn's atmosphere. Nobody thinks that those are related to life on either of those places. But there has been work done that that's shown that if you see phosphine in the atmosphere of a, of a terrestrial planet, that that might be indication of life. There are, I think, a lot of folks who would disagree with that statement, but that's one of the reasons why people were so interested in looking for phosphine in the first place, um, and then why they're so interested, you know, now having potentially found it in the atmosphere of Venus. But when you're saying life, you do not mean like you and I on Venus. That would never happen, right? The, the planet would be unable to host life like ours. Right. Again, Nadia Drake. Venus is utterly incapable of hosting life as we know it. But scientists have speculated that the Venusian clouds could possibly, just maybe, support some form of life. And one of the reasons why that actually isn't crazy is that we see microbes on Earth that live in all kinds of extreme environments. Basically, wherever we look for life on Earth, we tend to find it, even if it's in acidic hot springs or on the bottom of the ocean or in caves, you know, many miles beneath the surface of the Earth. Um, life does find a way. And so it's not completely inconceivable to think that microbes could be hitching a ride on cloud particles and enjoying an airborne life um, above Venus. For years, scientists have been looking for traces of phosphine on other planets. But more recently, a team of international astronomers led by Jane Greaves with Cardiff University began looking within the clouds of Venus for possible signs of life. So they had this observation that looked interesting. It looked tantalizing. They didn't really know what to do with it. And they got in touch with a group at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology that had been looking into phosphine extensively as potentially being a sign of life on exoplanets. Exoplanets orbit stars outside of our solar system. Essentially, they were looking very far away for this gas when another group found it in our own solar system. So when Jane Greaves and her colleagues got in touch with the team at MIT, the MIT folks thought, Oh my gosh, that's really interesting. We'd been thinking about looking for phosphine on planets that are very, very, very far away, but we hadn't ever considered looking for it on the planet next door. And so with that observation in hand, they wanted to try and confirm it. So last year, using radio telescopes in Chile, the international group again observed Venus and found what they thought was another signal of phosphine in the Venusian atmosphere. So it looked like the observations were all matching up and pointing to the presence of this gas. Fast forward a bit, and the international group of astronomers published their study in the journal Nature Astronomy. So that study got a ton of media attention. It was a huge discovery. It was a huge deal because this could be potentially the first sign of alien life beyond Earth if it's, if it's there. But then the plot thickens. After the break, we'll find out why those promising signs of life might not exist after all. I want to tell you about another podcast you might like. It's called The Best Advice Show. In each super short daily episode, a different guest offers a tiny morsel of advice that might help you change your life. Like this. Eat snacks like a frog would. So the way you do it is you pour a bowl of snacks. I usually like 
popcorn or goldfish. And then instead of using your hand to grab the snacks, you just use your tongue. Find the best advice show wherever you listen to Space Curious. After the initial wave of excitement, journalist Nadia Drake spoke to a bunch of scientists about the possibility of life existing on Venus. And what did other scientists who were not involved in this particular study tell you? It was a mix. Um, A lot of people were very excited. The folks who consider themselves astrobiologists who study astrobiology as a field that's incredibly exciting. It's been growing a lot over the last couple of decades. It's looking for signs of life beyond Earth as well as the origins of life on Earth. So the astrobiologists were excited. They were also not especially surprised by the idea that there might be microbes in the Venusian clouds. That was actually a hypothesis that Carl Sagan and one of his colleagues had proposed in the 1960s. So even though the surface of Venus is extremely hellish, it is possible that things could be thriving in the clouds above the planet. So there was a lot of excitement from the astrobiologists. But when I spoke with the radio astronomers who were or are experts in the techniques that the discovery team had used to observe Venus and identify phosphine, they were pretty skeptical about the observations themselves and the way that the team had processed the data. Mm. And so that was kind of a disappointment. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) What were some of the skepticisms that they shared with you? Some of the skepticisms that I'd heard from from the sources that I talked to were that the data from the original observation from the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope were not that great. The observation was not exactly a slam dunk. And it's completely possible, they were arguing, that the signal the team had identified as being phosphine was actually coming from sulfur dioxide, which is a different molecule that's extremely abundant in the Venusian atmosphere. So that was one hesitation. The second and the biggest one is that the data from ALMA, the telescope array in Chile, were a mess. There were problems calibrating the data. It was a lot noisier than astronomers generally like to see. And the processes that the team used to reduce it or get it into a form that they could actually analyze were, shall we say, unconventional. And so in the end, people were very, very concerned that the team was using a data set that was noisy to begin with, and they'd processed it in a way that could produce fake signals. Fake signals exactly where they want to see a line from phosphine. The coronavirus pandemic has placed a burden on scientists seeking more time at these big, expensive telescopes that could help confirm or debunk this discovery through more observations. A lot of the observatories shut down, just like everything else. You know, it's definitely a more challenging time to try to get observations of of any kind right now from the ground, for sure. Our space-based telescopes are still are still taking observations. Um, they're very socially distant, and so uh, we have. She's talking about NASA's Hubble Space Telescope and others that you can credit when you see mind-blowing images of the universe. On top of the pandemic, there are other challenges to making a discovery within the Venusian clouds. Even if everyone had access to 
every telescope on Earth trying to, you know, point it at Venus looking for phosphine. Um, there are other molecules that could look like phosphine. Making a huge discovery on your own is one thing, but there are processes in place to put the brakes on bogus science before it's released into the world. My undergrad research advisor used to say that, you know, he makes amazing scientific discoveries every day and then, you know, 20 minutes later figures out he's wrong <laughs> the vast majority of the time. And I think we, I think, you know, the longer you're in science, the more likely that is to happen to you or happen multiple times. Take coronavirus testing as an example. You know, it's kind of like, okay, well, if you like wanted to be really, really sure that you didn't have COVID, like you wouldn't just get tested a bunch of times using the same like one instrument. Like you would want to use a couple of different tests that exist. Or if you only had access to one kind of test, you would still want it to be run on a couple of different instruments just in case there's like something weird with that one thing. But it's also why we have the process of peer review so that um, you know, other people can look at what we've done and make sure that we didn't screw up. <laughs> other astronomy researchers have since attempted to verify the same findings using different methods. The international team behind the intriguing gas discovery used radio telescopes, but weren't able to use infrared telescopes because of limited access during the pandemic. Once again, National Geographic correspondent Nadia Drake. The first thing that happened was that a team with a lead author based in France, they actually had in their possession archival data from an infrared telescope that is actually one of the telescopes that the phosphine discovery team had hoped to use to confirm their discovery. And in those data, there's no sign of phosphine. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that happened was that at least two independent groups of scientists pulled the ALMA data and the data from the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. These are the same two telescopes the international team behind the discovery used. And they independently analyzed it. And what they found was that when they used the phosphine discovery team's methods of analysis of background subtraction and of data fitting, they could produce a signal where phosphine should be, but that it was a fake signal. So that processing itself uh, was suspect, according to these two teams of researchers. And additionally, what they found was that if they analyzed those data using more quote-unquote conventional methods, they could not retrieve the phosphine signal. In other words, it wasn't there. Now, we have two independent groups who can't find phosphine and one that has, but this is actually a good thing. Um, but that's kind of the way that we would expect a discovery of life beyond Earth to be. You know, the first detection of alien life is going to be ambiguous. It's going to be debated. It's going to be argued. It's going to require a lot of nuance and skill to explain to the public because it's not just going to be a UFO landing in your backyard. <laughs> as, much, as much as people wish it was that easy, right? <laughs> as much as I wish it would be that easy, yes. So is there a gas in the Venusian clouds produced by life? It's going to be a while before we can say. 
But regardless of this recent mysterious discovery, a lot of people have their sights set on this hellish planet. NASA is considering funding several missions to send to Venus, including two small spacecraft as part of its discovery program, and also a multi-billion dollar flagship mission to Venus. Flagship missions such as NASA's Cassini spacecraft to Saturn typically last decades and provide a deeper understanding of our planets and their moons. Next time on Space Curious, we're going to talk about the possibilities and perils of sending robots to Venus. Like picture this. This is what a typical NASA mission is. Somebody goes into a laboratory someplace and says, oh, you're making this crazy, impossible to do measurement here in the lab with a staff of technicians and all the room and power that you want. And then they say, I got a great idea. Let's make this really tiny. Let's put it on a spaceship. Let's have it survive a rocket blast where it gets shaked and taken up to four Gs and smashed around. Let's put it through space for four or five years. Let it get bombarded by radiation. And then let's get get to this place and still make these measurements as good or better than you did in the lab right here. I put a link to Nadia's National Geographic piece on Venus under this episode. It's a fascinating look at the process behind confirming or not confirming a major discovery. If you enjoyed this podcast and have more intergalactic questions for us to answer, submit your queries at clickorlando.com space. You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter at emspec. You can find Space Curious wherever you download your favorite podcasts. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. This episode was recorded, edited, and co-produced by Zach Rosen and myself. A special thank you to Sarah Hurst and Nadia Drake. I'm Emily Speck. Tune in next time for more stories that are truly out of this world. Until then, stay curious.